fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation 3, we're going to finish the chapter 14 to 22. By the way, I call you fellow students because you are students, and I'm saying that in faith, but I'm also saying that in fact, because I know many of you are diligent, diligent, diligent in the Word. We're going to be ending a particular phase of this uh, Revelation study this week. As you recall, for Revelation is divided into three parts, the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that are going to come after these things. Well, we're now finishing the things that are. This is the present uh, letter to seven churches, chapters 3 and chapter 4. Next week we move into the eschaton, the future uh, of Revelation, the chapters 4 through 28. And that's when we're all going to hold hands and jump off the cliff together. So be ready. We're going to spend, the Lord willing, months and months in 4 to 22. So it's going to be a different frame of reference and we'll be spending some time next week kind of orienting to you to how to look at this and interpret it and the various mechanisms and methods and interpretations there are because there's an enormous amount of a variety, shall we say, of, of, of ways to look at chapter 4 to 22. But today we're going to finish up chapter 3, verse 14 through 22, and we're going to be looking at the last of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Now remember, Jesus wrote seven churches, seven letters, and these were, as we mentioned, real churches, real people, real problems, but they also represent seven types of churches throughout history. As a matter of fact, all churches throughout history fit into one of these seven types, these seven templates. So it would be interesting sometime in the next week or two just to go back and read chapter 2 and 3 and look at the seven church models and ask yourself, wonder where Valley Baptist would fit into this. If Jesus Christ was going to write a letter to our church family here, what would he say? Would it sound like one of these seven church letters at this point in time? Out of the seven churches, as we mentioned last week, only two receive only praise. The suffering church at Smyrna and the missionary church in Philadelphia. The remaining five all have criticisms and you'll notice the criticisms get progressively more intense because the churches get progressively worse. We're going to come to the bottom of the barrel today. Laodicea does not have one positive thing said to it by Jesus Christ. There is only criticism, no commendation. Remember the church at Ephesus was very doctrinally sound, but they had left their first love. Pergamum, the church at Pergamum was tolerating sin, but they had many in the church family who had not yet denied the faith. Thyatira was a serving church, but the majority of its members were involved in sexual immorality and idolatry. The church at Sardis had a phenomenal past history. Uh, but the vast majority of that church was not even real Christians. It was a dead church. And today we're going to look at the apostate church, the literal unsaved church. As near as we can tell from reading this, there is not mention of even one believer in this church family. So it's an interesting uh, look. Here's the key idea. Self-sufficiency separates you from Jesus, and that is death. Self-sufficiency separates you from Jesus. Now for us Americans, this is very hard to hear. Because we are raised that independence is the mantra at which we worship, right? I want to be independent. I do not want to be dependent. In the Christian life, your source of life, as we found out from John, is what? Abiding in the vine. It's that connection, that dependent connection with Jesus Christ. This church had declared independence from Jesus Christ, and as a result, they were dead. Now, the word Laodicea, remember, when Jesus writes letters to churches, he follows the same format. The first thing he does is he gives you the name of the church. So the name of the church always has a meaning. The church at Laodicea comes from two roots. Laos means people. 
people. And dice or dk, d-i-k-e means judgment or rule. So Laodicea means rule of the people. You already know what kind of church this is, don't you? Or people's rule. This was a democratic church where decisions were made by popular opinion and by voting. This was a church where the people ruled instead of where God ruled. The sheep were in control, not shepherd, not spirit-led shepherds. This was a church controlled by men because the Holy Spirit wasn't there. Holy Spirit was absent from this church. Paul had warned Timothy about churches like this before in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4. If you're looking for a cross-reference, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4. Paul said, Timothy, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That was Laodicea. But that is the contemporary church in the world today, and especially in America. In America today, I know you won't believe this, but some churches hire motivational speakers. And then they give them the title pastor. These pastors are paid to tell the church what the church wants to hear. Not what the church needs to hear. They celebrate and exalt man, and you see some of them on TV every day. So this church in Laodicea is very contemporary, very relevant because the problems they have, the contemporary church has today. Let me give you a little bit of background about Laodicea. I hope Rob has a map up, I'm not sure. The church in Laodicea was located in the Lycus River Valley. There's a map on the screen. It was about, if you watch the map, it's about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. And it's about 100 miles directly east or nearly southeast of, uh, of uh, Ephesus. It's part of a tri-city area. This map probably doesn't show that. The other two cities are about are called Hierapolis. Hierapolis, about six miles north of Laodicea. And also not on the screen is Colossae. Colossae, the book, book of Colossians. Colossae is about 10 miles southeast. So you have Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. So Laodicea is located on two major trade routes. There's a massive trade route that comes all the way down from Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, all the way down to Laodicea, that line of cities. That's a big trade route. And then there was an east-west trade route that ran from Ephesus through Laodicea and all the way over to Antioch and down south to the east at that point in time. So very, very big, big trade. The city of Laodicea had been built and rebuilt a number of times, but it was rebuilt the last time by the King Antiochus II, he reigned from 261 to 246 B.C., and he named the city after his wife, Laodice, right? He divorced her, though, in 253 B.C. to marry Ptolemy's daughter, Berenice. So he exiled Laodice to Ephesus, 100 miles to the east. But in 246, he divorced Berenice and moved back in with Laodice. Yeah. Fairly modern problem, right? Later that same year, Laodice had him poisoned, and her another modern, another modern problem, and her supporters killed his ex-wife Berenice at the same time. Some people have a little more trouble with forgiveness than others, I guess. Right? This is just contemporary, right? Soaps, right? The city here, Laodicea, is extremely wealthy, but it had a major water problem, just like California. 
the local streams were way too small to support the growing population. They had the Lycus River and the Meander River coming through, but they were too dirty to drink. So they had a real problem because in the dry season they dried up. So the only springs they had on site were hot springs. And they were really, really minerally and really, really, they had lots of gas in them and so they were unfit to drinking. So they had to pipe water in from six miles away. And they had uh, distant hot springs. They piped the underground aqueduct, three foot stone pipes that they did. But that water, hot water, was also filled with minerals. And today, they just uncovered here several years ago, these three foot stone pipes, they were underground. And they've looked and the calcium carbonate incrustations on those pipes was like plaque in your heart artery. I mean, it was just huge. It really began to shrink the size of the aqueduct because there was so much mineral stuff in calcium in the pipes. This was a major problem. Jesus is going to talk about that. The city was also a, a wealthy commercial center. It was a banking center because they had the trade route coming through town. So there was a lot of currency exchange, a lot of bills of sale, a lot of credit offered at that point in time. As a matter of fact, the city was so flush with cash that in 60 AD they had a massive earthquake, leveled the city. They rebuilt the city with their own money and told Imperial Rome, we don't need your cash. We'll do it ourselves. Amazing. Jesus says that this wealthy city is spiritually bankrupt. Interesting. It's also, the city's very famous for its clothing industry. They had perfected a genetic breed of sheep that produced very glossy black wool and it was extremely soft. So this was a highly prized woolen industry and they made clothing and carpets. They had actually uh, innovated a very, very in a unique process of mass production. So they made clothing that was very, very affordable. So the entire city of Laodicea was very well clothed because it was cheap clothing. Jesus told them that they were spiritually naked. Interesting. Laodicea was also well known for its medical school. About 13 miles north of the city proper, they had a medical school, and they were really the innovators of ophthalmology. They had perfected an eye salve, an ointment for the eyes, and people came all around the region, Mediterranean, to get eye treatments from this particular location. Now, the medical community being um, Commercially prudent, as well as medically inclined, had figured out how to convert this ointment into a powder. They called it Phrygian powder. And you could compress it into tablets, so you could export it for sale. And it was extremely lucrative, very, very wealthy. So they helped people all around the region, the Mediterranean world, to see. Jesus told them that they were spiritually blind. Interesting. This church was probably founded by Epaphras, which was Paul's co-worker. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, you find out that Epaphras came probably from the city of Ephesus, traveled to the Lycus River. He founded churches in Hierapolis and uh, the city of Colossae and also Laodicea at that point in time. So these three churches were really sister churches, the, the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea. Interesting, when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, he told them to read this Colossians letter to the church at Laodicea. They were only 10 miles apart, so very, very close at that point. Okay, let's dive into the text itself. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, remember angel is, is angelos, which means messenger or pastor or leader. So this is a letter that's written by John to the church, given to the leader in the island of Patmos, and that leader then was to take that letter to the church, stand up in front of the church, and read it out loud. 
Can you imagine what some of these churches thought when the pastor read this letter from Jesus to them and Jesus said, I have this against you, da 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 da, da. Had to be some sober people, right? Remember that Jesus says, okay, first I'm going to have a name of the city. Then I'm going to introduce myself, Jesus as the author. Remember what we said, every single letter, Jesus introduces himself to each church differently. He emphasizes different aspects of his character because he knows the unique needs of that church. So when he writes to the church in Laodicea, he gives them three descriptions of himself. Number one, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and three, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now in Hebrew, the word amen, amen means the truth. It means that which is certain, that which is reliably and supportably accurate. So whatever God says is affirmed to be both true and to be certain. Now in scripture, you hear Jesus use this word all the time. Remember in the gospels he says, verily, verily, I say to you, right? Or in the English, truly, truly, veritas means truth, okay, truly, truly. In the Greek, if you read the New Testament, the Greek, Jesus would say, amen, amen, I say to you. So it, what it really means is reliably, truthfully, certainly, certainly, you can take this to the bank, so to speak, because it's utterly true and I want you to listen to it at that point in time. So Jesus is saying, I am the amen, which means what I'm telling you is utterly and absolutely the truth. Second description, he says, I am the faithful and true witness. Now, if you go to a court of law and a witness is sworn under the stand, they raise their right hand and they promise to do what? <laughs> Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. How many of you have been in court and seen witnesses lie out their ears, even though they swore to tell the truth? Sometimes you wonder, do you even know what the truth is, right? You've been self-deceived at that point. But the witness is vowing to be a faithful and true witness. And I'm going to give complete accuracy and to the best of their ability. Now, Jesus says, I'm the faithful and true witness. When the Lord of glory says he's the faithful and true witness, what can you conclude about his testimony? Since his ability is infinite, his assessment will be accurate, yes? Completely accurate, completely exhaustive, completely true, and completely reliable. So the church of Laodicea needs to know that the witness who is testifying against them is completely and infinitely accurate because his assessment of them is devastating. And when you read this assessment, you will be tended, you will, you will tend to say, I hope the witness doesn't have all our facts correct. Well, when Jesus is the witness, what do you conclude? The facts are correct. It's an accurate assessment. The church is the problem. It's indifferent, deceived, and lost. Jesus' testimony is sincere and faithful. So Jesus says, I'm the one who's writing you. I'm the amen. I'm certain. I'm reliable. I'm truthful. I'm giving, you, I'm giving you a complete testimony, and I'm the, the beginning of the creation with God. Now, the beginning of the creation with God means he is the source of creation. He is the origin of the creation. There have been a number of heresies driven right off of this because they've misread the Greek and they've said, well, Jesus is a created being, the first created being of God. That's heresy and that is not the case here. People that know the Greek know that. The Greek word is arche, A-R-C-H-E. It means the beginning, the origin, the active cause of something. Jesus is not a created being. He is the creator. And Paul is going to deal with this Gnostic heresy right up front when he writes the letter to the Colossians. 
Colossians and Laodicea are 10 miles apart. And they both have, at this point in time, incipient Gnosticism at work, which basically wants to denigrate Jesus off his throne as God. So Paul writes a letter to Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 to 16. Good cross-reference for those of you that want to write it down, Colossians 1. Talking about Jesus, and he says, And Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. The Greek there is prototokos. Prototokos means first as in preeminent, not first as in creation, but first in terms of place, right? Verse 16, Colossians 1:16. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Just in case you want to know what all things are, he tells you. Both in the heavens and on the earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, you get in the picture? All things have been created by Jesus and for Jesus, right? John 1.3 says, just in case you didn't get it, nothing has been made that was not made by him. Okay, we're, so Jesus, Jesus Christ is the creator, the accurate word of God, the reliable witness, the creator of the universe. He says to this church, you think we got a reliable witness here? I think we got a reliable witness. Jesus says, verse 15, I know your deeds. If you've been tracking us for seven Sundays now, as we've gone through seven churches, Jesus opens every single church letter with those words. I know your deeds. He's telling them what I'm saying and what's going to follow is based on exhaustive knowledge of you. I didn't hear about it from the New York Times. I didn't read about you on the internet. I know your deeds because I'm omniscient and I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm omnipotent. I know your deeds. My words to you are based on precise and complete knowledge. And here's what he opens with. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I would that you were hot or cold. Verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word spit is literally vomit. Here's the principle. Jesus does not tolerate spiritual apathy because he knows that indifference strangles your relationship with him. Indifference strangles all relationships. It's just a slow death versus a nuclear bomb. It's going to kill the relationship nonetheless. So this church suffers from the leukemia of lukewarmness. Now, hot and cold in Scripture are pictures of people's spiritual condition. Someone that is hot is someone who is spiritually alive, someone who's fervent for the Lord, someone who's cold is someone who's not a believer, someone who's spiritually dead. We know the church at Sardis was what? Dead, right? They were cold as a corpse, right? Literally cold. The church at Philadelphia was very hot, very alive. It was a missionary church. They were on fire for the Lord. We even use that word. Laodicea was a very lukewarm, tepid church. They were very self-sufficient. We're going to get to that here in a second. And self-sufficiency always leads to self-righteousness. Because as we said, indifference is going to kill relationships as surely as a grenade does. It's just a slower death, but it's still going to die. So these people were very, very indifferent to the Lord. They were lukewarm. Now, as we talked about, they would understand this word picture extremely well. Because remember, the city had no local water supply. They had to pipe it in, it was, and the water that they piped in was not very drinkable because it was from mineral hot springs. So they piped mineral hot springs water in six miles away through an underground pipe. What do you think the temperature of the water was by the time it got to the city? Lukewarm. Started out hot, cooled off on the six-mile journey. It was lukewarm. It was so foul-tasting, you could hardly drink the stuff. Now, here's the contrast. 
Six miles away north of Laodicea is the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was famous for its hot springs, its therapeutic hot springs. Even today, people will go to Hierapolis and they will sit in the hot springs for therapeutic purposes, very, very healing hot springs. And they were well known then and they're well known now. Ten miles to the southeast of Laodicea is the city of Colossae. You know what Colossae was known for? Cold water. Not only they were backed up against a mountain range, they had underground springs that literally burst out of the ground and they were extremely cold, extremely clear, cold, life-giving, thirst-quenching water. So you've got Colossae that's cold, you've got Hierapolis that's hot, and you've got Laodicea that's lukewarm, if you're looking for a little alliteration there, right? Laodicea didn't have therapeutic hot water and didn't have refreshing cold water. All it had was lukewarm, stinky water. Good for nothing. Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold, which means I wish you were spiritually life-giving like cold water that was refreshing, or I wish you were spiritually healing like therapeutic hot water. You were spiritually lukewarm people. You don't give refreshment and you don't give life. And you're not therapeutic. You're useless. As a matter of fact, you're so disgusting, I'm going to puke you up. Pretty strong language, right? Very strong language. The message to the contemporary church couldn't be clearer. The United States, among other things, and most of the contemporary world, is filled with churches that are lukewarm, complacent, apathetic. You know what we would call it? Comfortable. If you're comfortable in your faith with Jesus Christ, you're lukewarm, baby. Don't get comfortable. You know what real comfortable is? It's called horizontal room temperature. That's comfortable. That's how Jesus views this. He can't stand it. Now, that's not how the church saw itself. What was the church's self-image? Man, these people had quite an image, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Wow. Here's the principle. When you trust in wealth, you lie to yourself. When you trust in wealth, you lie to yourself. I was going to put down when you trust in your wealth. And I thought, no, no, you can be broke and trust in wealth. Broke people trust in wealth all the time. You're still lying to yourself because you believe if you just had enough wealth, you wouldn't need anything else. That's what this group says. Some people believe that if you have enough money, you literally don't. I mean, who needs Jesus if you have enough cash? Right? Until the doctor calls you up and says, by the way, you're terminal. Ah, then you start getting serious about something beyond this life, right? It's interesting, this group was very self-sufficient because they said what? I have become wealthy. Sounds like recent wealth acquisition, and this was a very diligent, hard-working town, so this group actually earned the money. I mean, they earned it. Hard work, diligence, they were wealthy because they earned it. We talked about they even rebuilt their own city. When they rebuilt the city in AD 60, Here's what they put on the buildings. They actually put plaques on the buildings that they rebuilt after the earthquake, and it says, out of our own resources. Rome, take your money and put it up your nose. We don't need it. Out of our own. You think these people were self-sufficient? You think they were proud of their self-sufficiency? Big time. Because of their pride, they forgot that God was the source of their prosperity. This is not a new problem. Israel suffered from the same malady. If you go back, if you really want a good set of references, Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 18, you could do worse than to memorize those eight verses. Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 18. Jesus, God, Jesus had told the Israelites, he had warned them, 
when you come into this land and you have eaten and are satisfied, and you've built good houses, and you've got all these vineyards and flocks, and your gold and silver multiplies, and all that you've got multiplies. Israel, when you come into this land and you get rich through your hard work and my blessing, here's the temptation, verse 17. You may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me my wealth. Verse 18. Here's the warning. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth. See, here's the problem. Human pride always takes credit for what God does. Always takes credit. You know how God feels about human pride? It's toxic. He vomits pride because these people are proud. They're self-sufficient. God says, this disgusts me. It's literally toxic. I'm throwing you up because it makes me sick. That's how God feels about pride. Here's the sin of self-sufficiency. I did it my way. I did it all by myself. Well, if all those other people, if they just worked as hard as I would, they would have what I have. Who are you crediting for the wealth? Me, myself, and I, right? That's pride. That's self-sufficiency, and as we said, self-sufficiency separates us from Jesus and it leads to death. Now, there's a big difference between what you say you are and what you really are. Jesus tells them what they really are, and the first thing they are is ignorant of their spiritual condition. You think they're highly conscious of their material condition? Oh, baby. I mean, they're keeping track of their bank account for their, for their financial wealth. Do you think they're keeping track of their spiritual bank account? Probably not. Probably very unaware of their spiritual condition. Jesus now is going to give them... The divine assessment, he gives them the spiritual reality. He says, you do not know that you are what? Five words. What are they? Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow. You think you're rich and have nothing, and Jesus comes along and says, by the way, my assessment is exactly opposite yours. And by the way, my assessment's actually exactly opposite yours because my standard of measure is not your standard of measure. You church at Laodicea, you are measuring yourself by the world standards. You know what the world standards are? Health and wealth, fame and fortune, power and prosperity, you know, smarts and success, all that stuff. That's not Jesus' standard of success. You know, this church is probably a wealthy church. It's probably a popular church. It's probably a very big church. I bet it got along great in the city. It's a wealthy town. It's a wealthy church. I bet the local community said, hey, baby, you want a Sunday service? Go to that church. They got some singers. Knock your socks off, man. Good entertainment, right? This church probably had big buildings, big budgets, popular speakers. World said they were doing fine. Jesus' assessment was diametrically opposed. Here's what's terrifying. Many times our assessment of ourselves is deceived. We think we're doing fine, and one of the reasons we are maniacs in this church about opening the Word of God, because the Word of God is a divine mirror that says, here's how God sees you, not how you see you. You know the biggest liar in Brad Hannock's life is Brad Hannock. You know who I lie to most of the time? Me. You know who the biggest liar in your life is? You. You know who you lie to most of the time? You. You look in the mirror and you lie to yourself. Daily. 
That's how we are. The heart is desperately wicked. We need God's assessment. Here's what the church should have been doing and they weren't doing. What's the purpose of the church? In Matthew 5.14, Jesus told his followers, you are to be two things. One is salt and the other is light. The church is supposed to be a preservative that prevents moral decay. That's salt. You're supposed to flavor the world with the truth of the gospel. Here's the assessment that terrifies me. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has what? Lost its saltiness, lost its tastelessness. I mean, become tasteless. It, how can it be made salty again? It is therefore no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. That is a very direct assessment. If you're not salty salt, you're not doing what God created you to do. And if you're not salty salt, what's Jesus say you're good for? Nothing. Wow. Pretty direct approach here. Jesus said also, verse 14 of Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. Because you have light, you have me living in you, you're supposed to let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify you. Glorify your fathers in heaven. So even when you're doing good stuff, don't take credit for it. Give God credit for it because he's the one who gave you your next breath. So light is a symbol of truth. Light is a symbol of illumination. The church is called to communicate the truth of the gospel to the world. That's why we're there. This church wasn't salt. It wasn't light. They weren't hot. They weren't cold. They were lukewarm. They were comfortable. They were indifferent. They were apathetic. They were complacent. And Jesus said, you're bankrupt. You're blind and you're naked. And you don't even know it. That's how much self-deceit's gone on in your world. I didn't give this one to Rob, but here's a little interesting thought for you. If Jesus, Jesus is not using you to change your world, Satan is using your world to change you. That's one of the two. It's a binary choice. If Jesus is not using you to change your world, Satan is using your world to change you. You cannot be complacent. You cannot be comfortable. If you get comfortable, you know what happens? You get assassinated. Only you don't know you're dead. Jesus said your five things. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. God's diagnosis. You think you're healthy, you're terminal. You're on death's door and you don't know it. You've been lying to yourself. He says, here's how bad it is. You're wretched and you think you're fortunate. You're miserable and you think people should envy you. You're poor and you're really bankrupt, right? And they're a regional banking center. And they have lots of material wealth. These people are wealthy physically, and Jesus says, you're broke. You're bankrupt. You're chapter 11. You're not chapter 11, you're chapter 7. You're disillusioned. You're out of business, right? He says, you're blind. You, you are an ophthalmological center. You give vision to people, and you spiritually can't see beyond the end of your nose. And you do ISAV, right? You are the emperor with no clothes, Jesus tells them. And yet, you think you're dressed in royal robes and you got a woolen industry. Do you see how Jesus is using the things that they take pride in to convict them of their spiritual need? The things that we're proud of the most in the flesh are the things that usually the Holy Spirit says, this is your point of need because your pride is separating you from dependence on me. And when you know what, you separate yourself from Jesus, what happens? You dry up like a branch, right? The vine and the branches. They thought because they were materially wealthy, they were spiritually wealthy. 
Don't ever confuse material prosperity and spiritual prosperity. The world does all the time. Jesus never does. Their material wealth had produced pride, which led to spiritual indifference, lukewarmness, fat, dumb, happy, and deceived. Now, they think they've diagnosed their status. Jesus really has diagnosed their status, and now he's going to give them the treatment. He says, I'm going to give you the solution. Verse 18. I advise you to buy from me three things. Underline them in your Bible. Number one, I advise you to buy from me gold. So what? So you can be rich. Buy gold from Jesus so you can be spiritually rich. Number two, I want you to buy from me white garments so that you can be clothed. Interesting. They thought they were rich and they were in the clothing business, but they didn't have spiritual clothing, just material clothing, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And number three, you want to buy from me eye salve so you can spiritually see. Here's the principle. <clears throat> Jesus is the only source for what everyone needs. Faith, forgiveness, and vision. Do you notice that Jesus is so gracious? This church is so out to lunch. And he says, I come to you as your counselor. I advise you. I counsel you. He doesn't come down with a 20-pound sledge and say, hey, stupid, capiche, this is what I want you to do. Or else I'm going to beat you. He says, I advise you to buy from me. This is the love of the Lord. He's graciously offering them things that they need. And he says, don't go to the marketplace and buy it. By the way, this was a commercial center. These people understood commerce. So he uses the language they could get. He's not using buy in the sense that you can earn this stuff from Jesus. Do you know what you bring to Jesus in order to get gold and eye salve and, and, and white garments? You bring you. You just bring you, yes? Broken, sinful, fallen apart, needy, me. That's all Jesus says. Bring yourself, Isaiah 55. And he says, buy for me. Don't go to the world to buy this stuff. You've already got the world, and it means you don't have what you need. Buy from me. I am the source of everything you need. And he's using the language of the marketplace they would get that. So the three things you need. Number one, gold refined by fire that you may become rich. Pure gold here represents the spiritual treasure of a proven faith. If you want to cross-reference on that, go to 1 Peter 1.6. 1 Peter 1.6. Peter is saying, You have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. What he's saying is faith is more priceless than gold. Why is faith so essential? Faith is essential because it's the key to having a relationship with God. In what did this church trust? What was the object of their faith right now? Their money. They said, I am rich and I have need of nothing. Wow. I would call that idolatry, right? If you have enough cash, you don't even need 10 billion like Donald Trump. You only need 2.9 billion like Donald Trump and you too cannot need nothing, right? I'm not critiquing him, but he's a representative of all of our human hearts. When you trust in your money, you're broke. Because you and your money are what? Soon going to part company. You only got a few decades on the planet, right? Jesus is talking about eternal wealth. He says, I want you to have a proven faith because without faith it is impossible to please him, right? You want a relationship with Jesus? It requires faith. Your faith in your stuff is making you indifferent to me. 
because you have a love affair with the things of this world, you're indifferent in your relationship with Jesus. You ever notice anybody like that? Their heart is so filled with their love and their calendar and their schedule in this world. Do you know how much time they have for the Lord? Not much. Maybe they can't even make it every Sunday because their whole life is so full with other stuff. That's what Jesus is saying. You're indifferent to me because your faith is in the wrong source. You need to have a faith that's more precious than gold than me because that's how you're going to have a relationship. So stop trusting in yourself. Start trusting in Jesus. That's number one thing you need. Number two, you need white garments. You need garments because even because you have a woolen garment industry, you need white garments to cover your nakedness. The truth of it is everyone is morally naked before God. You know something? On some level, everyone knows it. I've often been intrigued when you watch television and you see someone come out of court and they're convicted, right, of a crime. What do they do? They cover their face. Even the mob. You look at the mafia. You see these big guys that kill people and have people killed. What do they come out of court? What do they do? Man, their head's down. They want to cover their face. Why do they want to cover their face coming out of court? They're ashamed. They want to cover because they know they're guilty. Everybody has that. This church is covering themselves with wealth and with their physical clothing. Jesus says, no, you need white clothing symbolizing purity. You need my righteous robes. You need my righteousness because I will cover, I will take away your wickedness. You know, the first person that tried to cover up their sin was Adam and Eve. Have you ever asked yourself, wonder how big a fig leaf is? I mean, how many fig leaves would it take? We've got a polonia tree at our place, and they have leaves that are about a foot by a foot. I'm going, man, I hope they were big like a polonia, right? Now, fig leaves are pretty big leaves. If they tried it with little almond leaves, you'd be doing a lot of sewing. It was a real small leaf, right? You know? But they tried to cover their own guilt by means of physical clothing, and that was insufficient, so God slew an animal, a first animal sacrifice, and built clothing for them at that point of time. This church has on see-through clothing. They think they're covered, but you can still see the sin, right? Jesus said, you want clothing, get it from me, my white robes of righteousness, my forgiveness, that you take my righteousness and I'll take your sin, and only I can forgive your sin. Stop trusting in your, 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 your physical ability to cover yourself or your moral good deeds to try and cover yourself. Only I can forgive sin. So number one, you need faith. Number two, you need forgiveness. And number three, you need sight. Now this, this region has water with a very high alum, A-L-U-M, alum content. Very good for ophthalmology, very beneficial. As what they did is they produced a powder and they would mix it with bread dough coarse bread dough, and they'd put the bread dough on your eye and fix it there. They would hold it there because the bread dough would conform itself to your eye, and they'd leave it there for some period of time. Very medicinal at that point in time, the eye salve. And Jesus is saying, you help people with physical eye problems, but you are spiritually blind. You yourself are spiritually blind, even though physically you see well. You can't even see the fact that you're what? Lost. You can't even see the fact that you're broke, bankrupt. You can't even see the fact that you're exposed and you need covering at that point. In Scripture, who opens the eyes? The Holy Spirit. 
Who illumines your mind? Who says, I will remind you of everything Jesus said. I will teach you all things. What did Jesus say? I will send you the comforter after I'm gone and he will teach you all things. The Holy Spirit is there to open the eyes of the blind and show people their need for a savior. He says, you need vision, you need the Holy Spirit. That's a synonym, by the way, for salvation. Because when you become a Christian and Jesus Christ becomes Lord of your life, who takes up residence in your, whole, in your spirit? Holy Spirit does, right? So they need faith, they need forgiveness, and they need vision, and that comes from the Holy Spirit. By the way, do we need that today as well? Yeah? I know I'm talking to Christians, but you know something? Does your faith need work? Yeah, you know something? God's going to strengthen your faith this week. You know how he's going to do it? He's going to give you problems. He's going to give you some pain. He's going to stretch your faith. He's going to give you some resistance and spiritual weight training this week, I promise you. I don't even know what form it's going to take, but he's got a customized spiritual exercise program for you. This week, it's going to happen. I don't know what form it'll take. Do you know how you deal with that? You stop being self-sufficient. And you say, Jesus, I need your guidance. I need more faith. Great, I'll exercise your faith. I need your forgiveness. We're going to sin this week. You're going to need his forgiveness. And you're going to ask the Lord to open your eyes so you can see what he wants you to do and what he wants you to be. We need that even though we're Christians. This group is not saved. They really need it. So they need faith. Stop trusting in themselves. They need forgiveness instead of their own. And they need vision, the Holy Spirit, to open their eyes. And you can't get any of those on your own. And this church was trying to do it all on their own. And this is the great self-help story of the church. And we are guilty, guilty, guilty of that right here. Right? I mean, when people say we need to pray and somebody says, oh my, has it come to that? <laughs> you know? You know when most people pray? When there's no other choice left. You know, we might avoid a lot of those other choices if we would just pray first. Right? Pray first. Now Jesus is telling them, I've told you the problem, I've told you the solution, now I'm going to give you my motivation. Why am I doing this? Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's talking to you and me here too, by the way. Because he loves you and he's going to reprove and discipline our lives. That's his role. Our role is to do what? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, this is very comforting because Jesus loves this apostate church. He loves this unsaved, unconverted church. By the way, the church today is filled with people who are unsaved. Filled with people that are unsaved. The church is filled with people who don't know Jesus. They may know the pastor, they don't know the master, right? Jesus says, by the way, I love you and I will demonstrate my love for you by reproving you and disciplining you. Because I love you so much, I'm going to expose the sins and I'm going to bring conviction that we need to do something about that because I want this cancer dealt with so it doesn't kill you. He says, I'm going to discipline. Discipline means to correct what is not right. Using punishment as necessary. I knew you were pretty happy until I got to that part, right? Yeah, correct what's not right. Have you ever had to use punishment as necessary with your children? How about your grandchildren? Yes. They desperately need correction. Yes, because the human heart is what? Desperately wicked, right? Our human heart is. So discipline is a demonstration of God's love for us. We've said it in this class a hundred times. Jesus loves you way too much to let you have your own way. He loves you way too much because you know where your own way will take you? 
away from him. We are sheep and we do what? We get lost. We wander away. And then we argue with the shepherd. No, I really want to go over here. The cliff really looks good, right? <laughs> then you're in midair and you go, wow, what happened? You know, I don't know how I got here. Jesus is going to correct you. He's going to reprove you and pull you back. Now, he gives them a command. He says, be zealous, be fervent, be diligent, be eager, be excited, be enthusiastic to do what? What's it say? To repent. How many of you are excited to repent? Is that high on your list of stuff that you get excited about? Here's why you should be excited. Principle. Repentance is the key that opens the door to a relationship with Jesus. And I know some of you are going, well, I got a relationship with Jesus. Yeah, I know. How lukewarm is it? If it's lukewarm, we have repentance to do. If you take Jesus for granted, it's lukewarm, baby. Now, repent means to change your mind and change your direction. If there's no behavior change, you haven't repented. You've just confessed. You just felt sorry. You just got a little remorse going. I'm so sorry I got busted. But given the chance, I'm going to try it again. That ain't repentance. That's just sorrow and remorse. Repentance says, I'm sorry I did this and I'm not going to do it again by God's help because doing it makes me nauseated. I'm a sinner and I need the Savior. He says, be, be, be quick to turn from sin and be equally quick to turn to Jesus. You have to do both. Uh, verse 20, he gives you one of the most used uh, verses as a word picture of Jesus and his relationship. Jesus is now saying, by the way, because I love you, I discipline you, I reprove you because I want a relationship with you and I'm standing at the door and what? Why would he knock? Yeah, I heard, because if he doesn't knock, you might not know he's there. Most of us wouldn't. You know, I've often thought, this knocking sounds like, we know Jesus is a gentleman. We know he's not going to kick the door down. We know he's going to ask you to open the door. We know that the door openly opens from the inside, etc. I get all that. But does the knocking ever get louder in your life? See, we view this as salvation only. Now, I think sometimes we've got areas of our life we don't want Jesus to mess with, and we kind of lock that door, right? And he's knocking at that door, and we go, hmm, is that you, dear? No, that's the Holy Spirit saying, you need to deal with that. You need to deal with that, and if you don't open the door, he can knock louder, right? Because he says, I love you enough to discipline your life. But I would like you to open the door because I don't want someone who doesn't want a relationship with me. I want you to want a relationship with me, right? I stand at the door and knock. He's seeking entrance into our lives, into our hearts, and he's outside his own church. And Jesus loves us way too much to force himself into our life. He wants us to invite him in. Every person and every church chooses every single day to let Jesus in or lock Jesus out. Every day. Even as a Christian, you can choose to let Jesus in or lock Jesus out of your life, an area of your life. Here's what should terrify you. Jesus will honor your choice. For all eternity, he will honor your choice. 
lukewarmness will kill you. This letter Jesus is writing to this church is demonstration of his knocking. This letter is him knocking at this church door saying, I love you. I want a relationship with you. Come back, right? Come home. Open the door. I'm knocking. This letter is a knocking. The key to unlocking the door is repentance. And he says, I want to dine with you. That's sharing a meal. When you share a meal with the home of another person, that's a picture of fellowship. It's a picture of friendship. It's a picture of trust. So now that you've heard the heartbeat of Jesus who wants a relationship with us, even when we stumble and fall, he says, I love you. I'm going to come after you. Verse 21, here's the promise. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. So the overcomer is every Christian. Every Christian. You know what's intriguing here? He doesn't promise that those of you who are faithful Christians will get to play in heaven's backyard. He doesn't say you get to sit in the heaven's stadium, but you got to sit in the nosebleed section. What does he say? He says, those of you that love me, those of you that I know, those of you that accept me as Savior, I'm going to do what? I will give you access to what? The throne. Can you imagine? What happens on a throne? Thrones are where judgment takes place and where royalty sits and where kings sit and they exercise authority. And Revelation 20, we're going to get to in a few months, says Christians will reign with Christ on his throne. I mean, I'm even amazed that I will get in. Just get in, right? Only the blood of Jesus. You don't get in on your own good works. You've got none, right? You get in. But he says... Your family, and I'm going to elevate you, and you can reign with me. Amazing, amazing. And the last verse, 22, the admonition, the warning, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now remember, these letters were read out loud. They weren't read in script. They didn't have inkjet printers and laser printers. I mean, they hand wrote it and it read out loud. So he says, most truth is transmitted through your ears. People read it and you listen to it at that point in time. Now see, here's the point. Everyone has an ear, but not everyone hears. And you know what I'm talking about. Manna is the class that hears. Manna is the class that hears. Okay, summary. Here's the key idea. Self-sufficiency separates you from Jesus and that is death. Jesus doesn't tolerate spiritual apathy because he knows that indifference will strangle your relationship with him. When you trust in your wealth, you lie to yourself. Jesus is the only source for what everyone needs, faith, forgiveness, and vision. And repentance is the key that opens the door to a relationship with Jesus. Now, remember, I only want you to write down one thing that you will do as a result of this lesson. One thing. I know we won't do two or three. Write down one thing you will do as a result of this lesson. The other thing is, um, part of the reason we're together is not just to learn. Part of the reason we're together is we do life together, right? Doing life together means sharing our prayer requests. Doing life together means praying for each other during the week. Doing life together means popping a call into somebody when you hear a prayer request and say, how can I encourage them? What does that person need? Maybe I can walk this road with them. So you'll see life together up here a lot because that's who we are. We're family. Amen? And family does life together. Okay? Next week, look ahead. We'll be in uh, chapter 4, Lord willing. 
uh, and chapter 5. And now that you know, go and do. I love you.